love you. And so please help us now to receive your word by faith, to submit to your commands, to embrace and cherish your promises, Lord. Please encourage us to live lives that are full of righteousness and good works. Lord, your message of the gospel is it's the greatest piece of news in the world. Nothing could be greater, and yet we're fickle and weak and sinful humans. And so the glory of what you have done for us is often lost on us. We become preoccupied with the small details of our lives. Please now renew our joy and exaltation in your salvation. Please help us now. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're seated, please turn in your Bible to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Uh, the way it worked out today is that uh, our New Testament reading is also the passage that uh, we'll be looking at in the sermon. Uh, my father told me that his father would often tell him that the most valuable resource in the world is motivation. And uh, I found that true in my experience uh, in many areas of life. One area that I think it's particularly true in is with great athletes. Uh, and great athletes know this. Uh, Tom Brady, he's famous for relishing every snub and slight from his whole career. He loves having a chip on his shoulder. That's what allows him to work harder than everyone else to prepare like a maniac and eat avocado ice cream. Michael Jordan did the same in a slightly crazier way. Uh, Michael Jordan was infamous for making up insults and offenses that his opponents supposedly had against him. He'd tell himself, like, that guy hates you. He criticizes you all the time. He thinks you're the worst. And he'd, he'd lie to himself so that he'd become enraged and therefore motivated to perform at a very high level in the game. As you can see with that, not all motivations are equal in their honor. But the priority and value of motivation, it holds for your spiritual life as well. Uh, the way uh, someone else put it is that there are two things that allow you to excel. The first is talent and the second is motivation. And I don't think anyone has a particular talent for godliness. What does that mean? Well, why aren't you more godly? Why aren't you more mature? Why do you struggle with the same sins? Why have you perhaps plateaued in your spiritual life? Well, one answer to that question is that you are not motivated enough. You're not motivated enough to dedicate yourself to prayer. You're not motivated enough to humble yourself before others, asking for correction and help. You're not motivated enough to resist your fleshly impulses. And this is the case for all of us. We all need more motivation to forsake this world that's passing away and pursue riches and treasure in heaven where Christ is. We all need increased motivation. And you know what? I think it would be nice if the New Testament just gave one motivation. This is it. This is the only motivation for righteousness and goodness. Just get this one down and you'll be flying through your Christian life. That's not the case, though. The New Testament has all kinds of motivations for godliness, for good works. And that's because, well, we're fickle human beings. What might have inspired your sincerest devotion yesterday might do nothing for you today. And you think, what's wrong with me? Just yesterday, I had so much joy. 
that Christ died for me, that he's prepared a place for me. And today I think about that and it's nothing. All, all I can think about are the stresses and anxieties of my day. Well, this is a wonderful passage here, Titus 2, 11 to 15, because it gives us motivations to pursue godliness, righteousness, good works. Particularly, it provides the motivation for all of the standards of righteousness and good works that Paul has given to Titus throughout the book already. He has given all the things that we ought to do, and now he gives us the why in this wonderful passage. And uh, all three of these motivations have to do with salvation. And you can see it in, in verse 10, it says, God our Savior. Verse 11 talks about the grace bringing salvation. And verses 14 and 15 talk about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself. So, this morning we're going to look at three motivations for good works, for righteousness, for godliness. And they all have to do with our salvation Point number one will be what the Savior has done. Point number two is what the Savior is doing. And point number three, what the Savior will do. With that in mind, let's read at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, again, point number one is what the Savior has done. Turn your eyes again to verse 11, and I want you to notice the past tense there. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. If you are a Christian, God's grace has already appeared in the person and work of Christ. And he, through his ministry, has already poured out grace in your life. He has already saved you. And indeed, it is this Grace, this salvation that we have already experienced, the work that Christ has already done, which is one of the motivations for good works and righteousness now. This, by the way, is in contrast to Roman Catholic teaching. Roman Catholicism teaches that we must diligently pursue the sacraments, for in the sacraments we find grace, grace not being a disposition of God towards us, but grace being some kind of substance that can be imparted, and so as you take the sacraments in Roman Catholicism, you receive this substance of grace which is imparted to you and it allows you to then become righteous and just and in that way be justified. In Roman Catholicism, you do good works in order to receive grace and with that grace you then do more good works and you do enough, ideally, that you will be saved, that you will avoid maybe purgatory altogether. In Reformed theology, though, this is just the opposite. We do good works not to receive grace, but because we have already received grace. And we now do good works because good works are actually a feature rather than a price of salvation. That is, your salvation is not merely avoiding hell. Your salvation is that you are now what you were made to be. Your salvation is that you now are able to experience 
which is the height of all experience. And again, what God made you to do. Namely, to know him and to make him known. Your salvation is that you are freed from the dominion of sin so that you can now be like Jesus, the perfect man, the definition of what it means to be a human being, the very image of the invisible God. And for you to be saved, to have received God's grace and yet not dedicate yourselves to righteousness and good works, well, what you're doing is you're kind of missing out on one of the whole points the whole reasons that Christ saved you. You're missing one of the whole key features of your salvation. Think of it like this. Think of uh, Mark 2, where Jesus heals the paralytic. Remember that one? There's a man on a bed, and they can't get him to Jesus, so they lower him down through the roof. Jesus, first of all, says, uh, man, your sins are forgiven. And then after the Pharisees uh, talk to Jesus, Jesus then tells the man, get up from your bed and walk. And let's say that lame man is lying on his bed, and all of a sudden he feels some warmth go through his back. He feels feeling in his leg for the first time. He moves his legs around. He stands up. He cries for joy. He can walk. It's amazing. And then he lies back down on his bed, and he goes, man, this is great. You're like, aren't you going to go up and walk? Aren't you going to go walk around town? I don't know. Take a swim. Go see the hills. Aren't you going to walk? Nah, no. I think I'll lie down for a little bit. I'm a bit tired. I'll just rest a little bit. What, what do you mean? You've, you've done this for two decades. Hasn't that been enough lying down? Aren't you excited to now get up and walk? That's, that's why you were healed, is so that you could walk. Not now. I'll, I'll just lie here on the bed. That man, he, he wasn't merely happy that now there's not an injury in his spinal cord. Him merely being happy that his spinal cord is healed, but just keep lying on the bed... That's like you being happy that you have been delivered from hell, your sins have been forgiven, but you just keep on living like you've always lived. No, he's not just happy that his spinal cord works now, he's happy that he can walk, can run, he can experience human life as he ought to, as he was designed to. In the same way, we now dedicate ourselves to good works because we have already been saved, God's grace has already appeared. He has already done the work for us. It's not the lame man that he walks in order to have his spine healed. No, but he does walk because his spine has been healed. It's the same thing. And you're not doing good works to earn your salvation. But because you have been saved, well, you're going to experience that salvation. You're going to live out that salvation, which consists of now living in newness of life, in a resurrected life that is most of all a life that is like Christ's. Verse 11 is not the only place we see what our Savior has done. Paul kind of bookends this section uh, with talking about what our Savior has done. So turn your eyes down now to verse 14. It says there that Jesus Christ, our Savior and great God, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So if we combine verse 11 and verse 14... We see four things that our Savior has done for us. First of all, in verse 11, it says that he's appeared. The grace of God has appeared. The eternal Son of God has become a man. The Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. Grace has appeared to us. Verse 14, it says that he gave himself for us. This is likely a paraphrase of the famous verse in Mark 10, 45. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ has come and he has suffered God's wrath in your place. He has given his life for you. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was delivered up into the hands of cruel men, tortured, mocked, and crucified for your sake to ransom you. Verse 15 says that he did this to liberate you. He has liberated us. We were in bondage to lawlessness. We could not resist its control and we could not avoid its eternal consequence. But through his death, through his atoning death, he has liberated us fully from sin's control, from its consequences. And then verse 15, he has purified us. He has not only set us free from the external power and penalty of sin, but he has inwardly cleansed us from lawlessness as well. Think of the, the end of the first verse in Rock of Ages. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Again, your salvation is not merely that you are avoiding God's wrath. He's also made you pure in your heart. He's given you a new righteous and godly disposition. And it says there in verse 14 that Christ did all of this to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is a fulfillment of the oft-repeated Old Testament promise. I will be their God and they will be my people. He saved you so that you might be his and he yours. As 1 Corinthians 13 puts it, that we might know him fully even as we have been fully known. Your salvation is that you have come into an intimate union and communion with the Lord of the universe, as, as Dr. Thomas taught us last week. And what Paul says characterizes this people of God who are his own possession is, the phrase is literally in the Greek, zealots for good works. And zealots, it, it is a bad word, it is a, an exaggerated term. And Paul makes a punchy statement with that phrase. Zealots for good works, it's like Radicals, freaks, addicts for good works. That's what we are as God's people. People who are obsessed with honoring God through our actions by loving others and loving our Lord. And I believe that Paul's particular phrasing here, though it alludes to a lot of Old Testament passages, I think it's particularly alluding to Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 23. I'll go ahead and read it to you with my own uh, translation to make the parallels more clear. Here God is making a promise about Israel's new covenant, the new covenant that we, even though we're Gentiles, now enjoy in the church. This is what God says, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the lawlessness in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. God has always been seeking a people who would be his and would reflect his character, who would know him and would make him known. This was God's intention with Adam. What was Adam's role? What was his nature? He is the image of God. He is to have communion with God and then represent God to the world and his dominion and his character. 
As we know, though, Adam refused. He refused this highest of callings. And so God then, he, he chose Israel. He set apart Israel for this same purpose. They were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to follow God, to know him, to rejoice in their relationship with him. And from that, they were to be a set apart and a holy people that would be like a priest to the whole world. The whole world was designed to look at Israel to see their righteousness, their holiness, their character, and then to say, who is this God that you serve? Who is this God that you represent? And Israel then would tell the world, this is the God who made you. This is the God who rules you. This is how you ought to serve him. Israel, though, failed at that. They did not represent God to the nations. They became like the nations. And now God has given the promise of Ezekiel 37 to the church. We are to be God's people and be zealots for good works. Are you, as a Christian, fulfilling your calling? Is it your life's obsession to do good works for the glory of God? That is your role as a Christian. It is to honor God, to glorify Him by dedicating yourselves to holiness, godliness, to good works. There's no minimum line of good deeds to do. There's no minimum amount of dedication to God that makes you a Christian. No, as Christians, we're zealots. We're obsessed with it. We do as much as we possibly can. Why? It's the whole reason we've been saved. Well, so that we could be like Christ, so that we could represent him. And this obsession with good works, it doesn't mean sell your possessions and move to Tibet. What it means is to do the things that Paul told Titus to tell the church in the earlier sections. The good works that you are to do are the particular ones here outlined in Titus according to your particular station and place in life. So mothers, be zealous for the good works of loving your moody toddler or teenager. That is the good work that God has called you to. And it is not irrelevant. It's not insignificant. It is highly significant, and you glorify the God of the universe by your good work in that very difficult uh, challenge. Older women, then, you are to be zealous for the good work of teaching and training the younger women. Again, it's not peripheral to the other things you're doing in your life. This is your calling. Men, be zealous for the good work of denying your passions and lusts and being a leader in your home and the church. These good works, they they might seem small, they might seem insignificant, they're not. These are the things that we have been called to as Christians. This is the way that we represent the holy and righteous God to the world. Devote yourself to good works, devote yourself to righteousness. This This is your salvation, enjoy your salvation. If you're a Christian who lives like you did before, who lives like someone in the world, all the destruction of evil is going about your life. You don't have self-control. You're being like a paralytic who has his back healed but just keeps laying in your bed. Enjoy the wonderful gift you have been given. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He allows you to live in newness of life. Christ bought this life with his own blood. Take advantage of it. Don't waste it. That was point one. Point two now is what the Savior is doing. It's particularly there in verse 12. The grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I said that God has the same purpose for you that he had for Adam and that he had for Israel. The crucial difference between you and them is that they could not truly be good. God's grace had not yet appeared. The Holy Spirit had not been poured out. But for you, God's grace has appeared in the person and work of Christ, in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. And now this grace is training you in righteousness. The word that's translated there, training, it's the word for training a child. It would be used of a teacher with a student, of a parent with their child. And so it has connotations, depending on the passage, of both instruction and also discipline. And that indeed is what God's grace is doing in your life. If you are a Christian, by instruction and discipline, God is transforming you into the image of Christ. Dr. Thomas, he talked about a, a twofold aspect of our sanctification. He talked about mortification, that is killing the old man, and vivification, living according to the new man, the new life, the spirit inside of us. And these uh, two paths of sanctification are here in, in this verse as well. You see, first of all, the mortification. We are denying ungodliness and worldly passions. And uh, the, the tense of this verb is that our renouncing of ungodliness, it happened before, but it continues now. We began our Christian life with a renunciation, a denial, a, a saying no to everything we were before. No longer am I going to seek myself. No longer am I going to try and manipulate God. I'm done with all that. Now I'm going to submit to the Lord. I'm going to follow him. I will be his servant. And it is that denial that of ungodliness, a general disregard for God and his commands, that leads to then a renunciation of the many outworkings of ungodliness. That is, I think the phrase there, worldly passions. Ungodliness is the heart of what we were as sinners, as people astray from God, and that ungodliness then led to worldly passions, the things the unsaved, evil, and wicked world cares about. But we as Christians, we have denied them, and we must dedicate ourselves to continually denying those things. And on the other hand, now we live. The grace of God trains us to live, first of all, uh, prudently. It's, the word is translated self-control, but as I told you, this is the word that comes up again and again in Titus. The word, I think, is best translated as prudent. Most basically, it means a correct control of yourself. Your head rules your stomach and your heart. Then it says uprightly. Uprightly means correct behavior to others, and godly, that means correct behavior to God. God's grace is even now. The Savior is even now training you to these things. And maybe this morning, though, that doesn't feel to be the case. It doesn't feel like God is training you, or if he is, it's the very minimal amount. Though you desire to be changed, though you desire to be a godly man and woman, you just keep falling into the same sin and you keep asking God for help. It doesn't seem to come. I've, I've been there before. Well, let me read you this quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity that has ministered to me and I hope can minister to you as well. You must ask for God's help. Even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help 
or less help than you need is being given. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness, pick yourself up, and try again. Very often what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. For this process trains us in habits of the soul which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. We learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, and on the other that we need not despair even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. God is training you. It might not be in the area or the way that you think is most important, but believe Scripture when it says that he is training you. Believe it when he says that though your outer man is wasting away, day by day you are being made new. He is doing that. And again, it might be in the very pain, it might be in the very frustrations of your life that God's grace is disciplining you, is teaching you, is changing you. And so don't despair. Don't be hopeless. God is working on you. He is making you new. And wherever you are in your pursuit of godliness, whether you're very frustrated, whether you're having a very hard time, or whether you think you're doing very well, rededicate yourself to godliness. Why? Because God's grace is training you. God himself is teaching you how to be more like his son. Take advantage of that. You're not hopeless. You're not a lost cause. And even if you think you're doing well, you can do more. The God of the universe is making you like his son. Be encouraged. Take advantage of the power that he has given you. You have the Lord of the universe teaching and training you. This made me think of a beloved quote from John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. If you're frustrated in your sanctification, think about what God has already done for you. Think about the old person you used to be. Think about how selfish you were. And think how God has changed you, how he has been so faithful to you. How you now love him more than you used to. You now love his word more than you used to. Surely there are things that you used to do that by God's grace you just don't anymore. And see God's power in your life, his grace in your life. I'll be a reminder, I promise, that he is going to do yet more in your life. He is going to make you even more like your son. Have hope. Rejoice. Use this wonderful gift that you have been given. The God of the universe is training you by his grace to be like him. So dedicate yourself to good works. Use this training. Be the most Christ-like you can be. Let's now look at our final point. What the Savior will do. It's verse 13. It says there, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Actually, you could look back. Look at that last phrase of verse 12. It says that we are pursuing these godly lives in the present age. That's the rub. That's the challenge. That's the difficulty. We are pursuing this new life of righteousness and goodness in an evil world, in a place where the values of the world are always continually being impressed upon us. We are seeking to live in this world as citizens of another our possessions are in another place. Our values are in another place. We are pilgrims and sojourners. And what allows us, though, to carry on as pilgrims is our longing for our home where we will live and reign with Christ. 
And that word there translated by the ESV, waiting, it's a more powerful word than just waiting. It's longing. It's eagerly anticipating. That's what our Christian life is in the midst of this battle for righteousness and godliness. It is all with an eager, overwhelming desire to leave this world for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, for all of our sorrow and pain to be removed, for us to know eternal and infinite joy. That's what we're longing for. And you see verse 13 says, first of all, we're waiting for our blessed hope. Hope here not being uh, the adjective, the characteristic normally, but rather hope meaning the thing that we hope for. Our blessed hope is soon going to appear. The thing we are waiting for, to be with Christ, for him to, wa- uh, to wipe away every tear from our eye, for death and sorrow to be no more. So we're waiting for that. We're waiting for our blessed hope to appear We're also waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. First of all, this is a wonderful verse right here because it is a direct assertion that Jesus is God. So our great God is not the Father and then Savior, Jesus. Rather, this construction in the Greek, the two phrases have to be referring to one person. This is a direct assertion that Jesus of Nazareth is the great God. And indeed, the reason people doubt that, the reason people don't know that he is the great God is because his first appearance was in humility and meekness. His glory was veiled by the lowliness of humanity. And now though, while we rejoice in his first appearance, we long for his second appearance, which will not be humble, it will not be meek, it will not be unnoticed. His glory will light up the skies, the earth will resound with trumpets, the dead will rise, the wicked will flee into caves and call to the mountains, fall on us. Then everyone will know that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal God who dwells in unapproachable light, and he will show himself to be our Savior. He will rescue us from every evil deed, every sorrow, and he will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. And we will behold the glory of God. This beholding of the glory of God is what is called the beatific vision. It is the culmination of existence. It is the the highest of experiences that you would see God. That's it. You would see him as he is. Every good thing flows from him. He is the definition of all goodness, beauty, everything. And to see him, to see it all, it's what you were made to do. And that's what we're waiting for. Can you believe that? You as a frail, finite human being. You have been saved by Christ, and so one day you will enter into a relationship with him where you will see his glory fully. You will enter into eternal and infinite joy. Christianity is the only religion that even offers something this high. The other religions, you know, Buddhism offers non-existence. Oh, that's great. The other religions basically offer wait, uh, Islam, you get virgins. Christianity offers eternal and infinite joy that you will see God. There is nothing greater than that. And we ought to be dedicating ourselves to good works because the one who has liberated and cleansed us to be zealots for good works is going to return. Will he find you abounding in the good works that he has prepared for you? It's like if Jesus went out for the day and came back to that house and he's like, you're still lying here on the mat? 
I thought I raised you. I thought I allowed you to walk. Is that going to be Christ's return to you? What are you doing? I, I saved you to live a righteous and godly life. Why are you living like you used to? Will he find that you took the five talents he gave you and made five more? Or will he find that you buried your talent in the ground? The, the beautiful thing is that on that day, he will reward you for the good works that he has done through you. It's not really you. It's, it's his grace. It's his work the whole time. But still, he is going to honor you and reward you as if it was you. It's too much to express. And let me say, it's impossible for you to be a zealot for good works in this evil and wicked world without this longing and hope motivating you. Hebrews 12 says that even Jesus endured for the joy that was set before him. You have to have this joy ahead of you. If you don't, you're not going to be motivated to be a zealot for good works simply because you feel like you owe it to God for what he did for you. That's not going to be enough. You need the carrot of eternal and infinite joy pulling you forward. As Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now all we have left is verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I'll go ahead and apply those to myself. This morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ, you must repent and trust in him. He is going to return in his glory. Yes, that carpenter from Galilee lived 2,000 years ago and was crucified by the Romans. He is going to come back. And every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. Don't wait till then. Repent and trust in him now. He can forgive all of your sin. You can live in newness of life. You know how destructive your sin is. You can see the consequences in your life. Jesus will save you from that. And for those of you who have already been forgiven, liberated, and cleansed by his blood, I exhort you, dedicate yourself to good works. Today, this week, let that be the thought that is always in your mind, the first thing you think of in the morning. What good works can I do today? How can I be more like Christ today? How can I serve others today? That's why you're here. That's why you're alive. Let's pray asking the Lord for his help. Indeed, Lord, please save souls this morning. Convict them. Open their eyes to their need of you. Have them see the wonder that you have died for them. You have risen from the dead. You have conquered sin and death. And they can too if they would just believe and trust in you. Please do that work in their heart. And Lord, on behalf of all of your sons and daughters here, please help us be dedicated to good works and to righteousness. Please help us mortify the deeds of the flesh have us put to death those besetting sins. Help us live and enjoy this newness of life that you have given us. Let us be lights in the midst of a crooked and dark generation. Let us be ruthless in our elimination of every type of sin and evil in our lives. Please help us, Lord. Motivate us again and again and again to pursue you and your kingdom. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.